Hey, have you ever wanted to be a twin? Yes. You have like really? that built-in. Yeah, you have a built-in best friend and you probably look like identical or at least very similar. I've always wanted one. I also wanted to have kids that were twins. Cause then you that have like, more kids but less pregnancies. That sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> you want to be a twin? No, I've never wanted to be a twin. I knew twins in high school and they were not nice people. So I don't know. Why? Because they only liked each other? They were just real big bitches. <laughs> <laughs> awesome they're bitchy and like they did that thing where they would try to like pass off as each other and you were never quite sure who you were talking to it's even worse yeah i'm sarah i'm allison and we're two girls in a campfire and this week we are going to be talking about obviously twins i'm really excited no offense to any of you twins out there we just haven't known any great ones i haven't known any great ones also, the twins of my story are batshit crazy, too, so sorry. There does seem to be an element of risk being a twin. Why don't, you, why don't you go ahead and start? I feel like you have a really interesting story this week. Okay, cool. My twins, June and Jennifer, were the daughters of Caribbean immigrants, Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons. Gloria was a housewife, and Aubrey worked as a tech or technician. I'm not sure what this is, but he's in the Royal Air Force. The twins were born in April 1963. They were actually born at a military hospital in Yemen because their father was deployed. The couple also had two other kids. So they had a sister, Greta, who was born in 57, and a brother, David, who was born in 59. So not only are they twins, they're like the babies of the family. Double, double, double trouble. (laughs) Right. Soon after the twins were born, the family relocated from Barbados. They went to England first, and then in 1974, they went to Haverford West in Wales. That reminds me of in Mr. Deeds when she, like, makes up the town name. Oh, yeah, it's like Westerlyville Small Town or something like that. Yes. Like, you put too much stuff in there. I don't know how to pronounce that. So then things start getting weird. The twins were really late talkers. They didn't start till they were, like, three or four And when they finally did start talking, it wasn't English. The words were like garbled. They made fucking weird noises. They like chirped and squeaked at each other. They would enunciate like the weird, like a syllable that normally you don't enunciate in a word. And they refused to talk to anyone but each other. That is so interesting. So their, pa- their parents were from Barbados. Were they maybe thinking they were trying to speak two different languages? Kind of. They think it is kind of like like Creole, like that combination. But also they came to realize that it's just really sped up. Like they talk super, super quick and then they like make weird noises and then they enunciate different parts of the words. So really no one could understand anything they said at all that's interesting Hudson's really upset about that (laughs) oh Hudson maybe he knows that language and he's trying to chime in they were the only black children in their community all of the kids of this family so the twins and their older siblings 
They're super ostracized at school. They're different. This, though, makes a huge difference for the twins. They're super traumatized to the point where, like, the school principals will let them leave school early every day so that hopefully they could get home before the rest of the kids get dismissed and to avoid, like, bullying. Their language becomes even more crazy about this time. They pretty much don't talk at all to anybody. Also, on top of talking, you know, gibberish, they also start doing this weird thing where they like completely moved in sync. So like if one of them was going to like move their arm to wave or whatever, the other one would be right there doing like the exact same thing. Or they'd both be sitting in class and be sitting the exact same way. Was this was this ever like planned or this was just their weird twin connection thing? Supposedly, no. Supposedly it's not planned. And here in a little bit, I'll tell you a little bit more. But yeah, so apparently they were just like that in sync that they just did. Like they would eat, they would both, you know, eat the same food first and, you know, take bites at the same time, weird things like that. See, that's creepy. That's why I don't want a twin. Like, stop copying me. <laughs> Remember when you're a kid and you're like, stop copying me. Copy me. Yeah, right? That's weird. So they continue to attend school, but they refuse to read or write or do schoolwork. Uh, so, and this is in England, right? How interesting that they took them into the school system, even though they obviously had like some issues. Yeah. So then in 1974, so they're like 11, they're having people come to the school and give vaccinations. And the person, the medic that gives them their vaccine is like, what the fuck is going on? They're very like impassive and just like flat affect. And so he was like, this is weird. He notifies the school psychologist who in turn notifies someone else. So they begin seeing what starts as like a huge long list of different therapists and all of them are trying very unsuccessfully to get them to communicate in English and with people other than their twin. None of that works. So they decide that they kind of need to have a come to Jesus meeting and they actually send both of them to separate boarding schools hoping that if they were alone, that, you know, they'd start acting normally and maybe connect with other people. So that worked really well. Uh, They both pretty much became catatonic and refused to leave their room, like get up, like anything. So they just become completely withdrawn. That is so, what is going on with the parents? Like, do you have information? Like, what are the parents saying about all this? Oh, they're just twins. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, they're like, I don't know. Yeah. But like I said, like, they've never talked to the adults. Like, they've never talked to their parents. You just have these weird kids running around. So, and like I said, it was like 70s. So I wonder if, like, the parents were just like, oh, they're mentally handicapped and kind of left it at that. Okay. Because like I said, at first, they don't know, they don't recognize what makes up their language. So they're just hearing like weird noises. And so they really are just like, we have no idea. And then they refuse to read and write. So for all they know, they're like not there mentally. Yeah, but I don't know. I just like as a parent, like, wouldn't you be like, what the fuck's wrong with my kid? (laughs) And maybe they did. And they took him to the doctor. The doctor's like, we don't know. 
physically they're fine. They can talk. Well, I mean, mental health is still a, a really not well-equipped field, you exactly. know, as much as it could be. So I can't even imagine like in the 70s, right? They're like, we don't know. Oh, well, have a good time. Bye. Okay. Yeah. All right. So they're at boarding school and that's just even worse. So then they reunite and the twins are like pissed off that they've been alone for so long. So they then refuse to leave their room. So not only are they not talking to anybody else, they spend literally several years just isolating themselves in their room. Nobody was allowed to come in. The mom would literally like make food trays and then like knock on the door as she ran back down the hallway. So they would like open the door and bring the food in. Once in a while, they would move the TV so that it was near the foot of the stairs. And then the twins would like sit at the landing at the top of the stairs and just like watch TV. So that's nice. That's nice that they made some concessions for them, you know? <laughs> right. It's just move the TV over here for you, whack job. Hey, if you want to watch TV, you have to walk your ass down the stairs the very least come on yeah so they start engaging in like very elaborate they like create plays and then they have their dolls and they're kind of acting them out they're very soap opera like so like super dramatic and kind of you know those three-way love affairs so some of sometimes they would read their plays aloud and record them and the only sibling that they vaguely had communication with was their sister, Rose. So they would like give her these cassette tapes as like a present and she get to listen to them reading their make up stories. Ooh, did you find any of those recordings? Are those still in existence? Um, there's a shit ton of stuff on YouTube. I didn't go listen to it. Um, as they get older, there's all interviews and stuff too, but oh. there might be some somewhere. Interesting. It might be interesting to listen to just to to hear. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I mean, is this in their own language or is this in like a coherent English language? Like it's like coherent. So their sister can understand them. Yeah. Okay. But I don't think they directly talk to her. So that's like weird too. Right. Interesting. Okay. And how old are they at this time? They're still like preteen teenagers. So this is 79. They were born in 63. Okay. So like 16. So that Christmas when they were 16, they got a pair of diaries. They decided that they were going to start writing. They're going to be writers. They're going to write everything down in those diaries. They sent away, which I think was hilarious. They did a mail order course in creative writing, which if you'll remember, they won't write in school. No, but here they are, like, making melodramas. And... Yes, and they can write now. Like, I mean, I guess it was always voluntary that they didn't do things. It wasn't that they couldn't. It was just that they didn't want to. Yeah, which is also another really strange element that, like, you're learning these things, but nobody see you practicing them, and then all of a sudden you're, like... Yeah. You know, if somebody didn't know that you could write, like, if they just didn't, if they thought that you just couldn't do it... Right. It's crazy. So they each, like I said, have a very extensive diary and they start writing stories and poems and novels. Most of the stories are set in the United States and weirdly specifically in Malibu, California. Yeah, Malibu. (laughs) Yeah, right. I just assume like they were watching, you know, something on TV and they got that. Oh, yeah, California. It's where all the famous people live. You know what I mean? 
that big stereotype. Yeah, especially in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. California was the rage. (laughs) So another weird thing about these stories they're writing, they are usually, they involve men and women, and they are all like have weird kind of strange characteristics. And they're also very criminal. So like all of these behaviors they have would be like, um, that's called arson and we're not allowed to do that. Or yeah, that's called stealing. Like, so all of their people do like weird criminal activities. So here's some examples. So June wrote a story or a novel that she called Pepsi Cola Addict, which literally, I don't, okay, I've not read it. However, from the snippet it has literally nothing to do with pepsi but whatever there is a high school guy and he gets seduced by his teacher and then they send him away to a reformatory where a homosexual guard then tries to pick up on him and i'm like where did pepsi come from Okay, but also, isn't that interesting? Like, I wonder if these girls just experience, like, massive amounts of trauma. Like, is the story a reflection of something that happened to them? I mean, they were traumatized. Did something happen at regular school? And then, like, they go to this, Yeah, you know, how interesting. Okay. I just think it's funny when people write stories and that, obviously, it's a male character. Like, it seems totally different, but is it really that far from maybe what you experienced because how else are they going to know these things exactly well and they were traumatized at school like the way everybody bullied them and so there's no telling what actually you know they were forced to endure so they're a little bit older in the UK if you don't work you pretty much just get unemployment it's not like here where you've had to work so much time and then get fired or whatever so they get unemployment and they use their money to publish their novel by vanity press like do you remember that where you literally like would pay them money and then they would print your novel it's kind of like self-publishing but it costs you money yeah yeah I remember that kind of arm of the publishing world back in the day right that was like yeah that was like the first way you could self-publish something yeah um they attempt to publish some other novels and stories but that was unsuccessful And then Jennifer wrote a story about a physician who is so eager to save his child's life. He kills their dog. So the family's dog and he takes the dog's heart and he's going to implant that in his child because his child needs a heart transplant. But then some freaking Stephen King shit, the dog spirit lives on in the kid and then eventually it gets its revenge against the father yeah that's like that's a good story (laughs) right I'm like are we sure Stephen King didn't write that like it's crazy I kind of want to read that one that one's good and then (laughs) Jennifer also wrote it's called disco mania a young woman discovers that a local disco the atmosphere there it makes patrons go like insanely violent Then she wrote The Taxi Driver's Son and a bunch of different short stories. So they're like writing a lot. I mean, I guess when you don't leave your room for eight years, you've got time on your hands. I guess so. Maybe maybe that's why I need to jumpstart my writing career. I just need to lock myself in my room. Good plan. I'll see you in eight years. Is Dina (laughs) going to feed you though? 
Probably not. <laughs> it's not going to work. You need someone to shove food under your bedroom door. Send me packages. There you go. I'll send you boxes of food. <laughs> so, like I said, on top of writing these stories, they also are keeping very extensive diaries. They write in them maybe multiple times a day. Okay, so they're writing about what they do throughout the day. <laughs> My brain isn't working. It's too early. They also start writing, which is at the time like this huge secret. They feel like they are trapped and possessed slash tortured by each other. So even though they only talk to each other, they're like inseparable. They fucking don't like each other at all. Well, yeah. You ever been married to somebody for like 50 years? (laughs) This is just like a time warp, right? Because like they've been together literally since the moment of conception. Yeah. You'd be sick of them after 18 years too. I mean, I've been married 20. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, but Okay, but. You you had like you had like time before that <laughs> by myself, yeah, by yourself. <laughs> so not only do they like not like each other, but they blame each other for the fact that they don't talk to people and they don't hang out with anybody besides each other. Which I thought was really interesting that both of them are like, "This sucks. We hate speaking our secret language. We hate hanging out with each other." But no, we still have to keep doing it. I think there's just like, I mean, this speaks to the level that codependency can get to, right? Yeah. Like, just like you spend all this time with somebody and then you realize you don't, you can't fucking stand them. But then you're like, what do I do? I'm trapped with you. Exactly. So this is a quote from one of their diaries. It says, we have become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We feel the irritating, deadly rays come out of our bodies, stinging each other's skin. I say to myself, can I get rid of my own shadow? Impossible or not possible? Without my shadow, would I die? Without my shadow, would I gain life, be free, or left to die? Without my shadow, which I identify with a face of misery, deception, murder. I mean, that's some heavy shit. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. I don't understand why they just, like, somebody didn't move down the hall. Well, and then when they, like, were, Jesus when they were forcibly separated, they were still like, nope, can't do it. Which you'd think, like, that would have been their opportunity. Like, they were in separate places. You could have even told the other twin, oh, yeah, I just laid around all year. But wink, wink, you go and make friends. Yeah, but these they, they have, like, that deep psychic twin connection. Like, you're... They would have known. Jen's going to know that the other one's running laps. Like, I'm just saying, she'd be like, why am I so sweaty? <laughs> What's happening? Why do I have a cramp in my calf? Damn it. She's running again. I don't like running. So when they're about 18, they decide, you know, life sucks. So they start drinking and doing drugs, which I'm like, where the fuck did you get drugs from? You're not going to go talk to the random guy on the corner. Yeah. That's interesting. Maybe they just stole it. Maybe. Because at that time, they actually start committing crimes like vandalism, petty theft, arson. They get arrested and they get admitted to the Broadmoor Hospital, which is a high security mental health hospital. A kind of fucked up thing is they are sentenced to an indefinite time there under the Mental Health Act of 1983. Yeah, that's enough to make me get not insane real quick. Like, there's not a time limit here. Exactly. I'm all better. (laughs) Okay, we're fine. Let's go. 
So they are at Broadmoor for 11 years. June later blames their sentence on their selective muteness. So she says, juvenile delinquents get two years in prison. We got 12 years of hell because we didn't speak. We lost hope, really. I wrote a letter to the queen asking her to get us out, but we were trapped. So, of course, as we did in the 80s in mental health hospitals, they were placed on super high doses of antipsychotic meds. Like we know now, they cause side effects. So they were like unable to concentrate. Jennifer developed what's called tardive dyskinesia, which is like a neurological disorder where you have like more or less like muscle twitches. So you do like a bunch of like involuntary, like repetitive things. That sounds uncomfortable. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. So finally, because that's like a pretty severe side effect. So they, after that, at least they started adjusting their meds. Before that, they they had stopped writing for however many years that took because they were just, they were zombies more or less. After they did that, they went back and started doing their diaries again, but they had lost that interest in, in the, in the like telling stories and the creative writing aspect. So they went back to writing after they were released or just after a certain period of time? They're still in the hospital once they, yeah, once they fixed the meds. Got it. A little bit. So then they start becoming famous. A journalist named Marjorie Wallace comes and interviews them and starts talking to them. And she writes a newspaper article. And then she'll later go on to write a book called The Silent Twins, uh, which came out in 1986. So Marjorie went to visit June and Jennifer in that prison while they were awaiting trial. And she thought she might be able to kind of break through their silence. So she contacts their parents and their parents let her come and she just takes a shit ton of the diaries and the books and all of the stuff they had been writing and she reads it. So she goes to visit them in prison and she says it was, it was insane when they came in. So they took one twin in at a time and they were just kind of like standing still, like not moving to the point where it almost looked like they were like standing in a coffin. And so they just kind of drug them in and set them down. And then she would just look down at the ground. She didn't move. Her hands were just kind of hanging by her side. And then they go to bring in the other twin. And again, it's identical. Like she's doing the exact same thing that that twin did. So she, you know, they go and they sit down and this reporter was like, so I've read some of your writing. And then she sees like life in Jennifer's eyes you know and she says did you like them and suddenly they're like oh let's talk yeah suddenly I need a new career that would creep me out as a reporter (laughs) right but she knew that talking about those stories is what's going to kind of get them back right she realizes that the twins totally want to be famous and you know recognized and have their stories published Wallace decides that talking them, talking to them about it is the way to kind of unlock them from their like zombiness. The doctors at this time still think that June and Jennifer are really disturbed and dangerous. They're doing weird shit still. One day, like Monday, Jennifer would eat and June would sit there and not eat anything all day. And then Tuesday, June would eat and Jennifer would sit there all day and not eat. 
And then other times, so they weren't kept in the same cell. They were in two different cells, like down on opposite ends of like the corridor, whatever. And nurses would come and find them like laying or sitting frozen in the same pose where there's no way that they could communicate, you know, hey, let's go and sit crisscross applesauce on our pillow on our bed. But they would see that they were both doing the same thing. Gotcha. So the, again, there's that twin telepathy thing, right? Yeah. And they're just doing weird shit. And nobody else is like, what is going on? After those 11 years in that hospital, it's decided that they can go to like a step down facility. And once they're there like a year, they can, you know, be repeat, they'll be considered rehabilitated and they can go home. That same reporter, Wallace, goes to visit the twins right before they're supposed to get transferred to that new facility. And Jennifer tells her, I'm going to have to die. And Wallace was like, what? Like, don't be silly. You know, you're only 31. You're fine. You're getting out of here. Why would you have to die? You're not sick. And Jennifer says, because we decided. Wallace says that at that time, like, she gets fucking freaked out. She was like, she could tell that they meant it. Like, they were dead serious. And then they said, we made a pact. Jennifer's got to die because they said that day that they left Broadmoor, the day that they were free from this, you know, more secure hospital, one of them would have to give up their life to make sure that the other one could really be free. Later, that reporter hears from the staff that they had been screaming fights between the two of them about who was going to die. So like in, you know, the cafeteria or whatever like they would just have these loud screaming fights about well you have to die so I can be free and the other one's like "Mm, bitch I think you should die and I'll stay free and then they read her a poem they had written which was that two is your laughing that two is your smiling and now I'm dead that two is your crying that's fucked up right like if you're having this screaming match though how do you ultimately decide who's the one that's gonna die they wore each other out till they were like, all right, fine. You're the only, the logical choice. The logical choice. Right? It's probably like, you were born three minutes earlier. So you've you, lived longer. You she says that Jennifer's cheekbones look very thin and her face is flushed. And Wallace says she looks fucking scared because no shit. But June looks like determined and she's like, yeah, this is what we're doing. Obviously, Well, yeah, she's the one that's not going to (laughs) die. Exactly. Wallace is fucking freaking out at this. So she calls their doctors and the doctors are like, oh, they're, you know, still locked up and we're monitoring them and you don't have to worry. And she says that like, she pretty much was just waiting for them. She was supposed to get a call when they were, when they showed up at the new facility. And finally she hears from one of the doctors. So this is March of 1993, and they're getting transferred to Coswell Clinic in Wales. On arrival, Jennifer could not be aroused. She's non-responsive. She's taken to the hospital where shortly thereafter, she dies of what they say is acute myocarditis, which is inflammation around your heart. There's no evidence of drugs or poison in her system. And to this day, her death remains a mystery. They have no idea how she died. What? She literally what? 
willed herself to die. I mean, I've heard of that happening, but that seems usually it's when somebody's already really sick or like heartbroken or something. Yeah, but it takes years, right? It's not okay. We decided you're gonna die, so you've got twelve fucking hours. Like, get it together. We're on a time <laughs> crunch. Snap, snap. Yeah. And so at first, some of the doctors thought that since they were on like such high doses of those antipsychotics that maybe it had, you know, weakened her immune system or something, but June's fine. And she's on the same amount of meds and she's not having any, you know, myocarditis or any other health issues. That is just, that, that is, that's a super creepy thing to me. Like, Obviously, everybody's freaking out. So they sit June down and they're like, what the fuck happened? And she says that Jennifer had been acting strangely for about a day before she'd started slurring her speech, which I'm like, how do you understand that when your speech is already fucked up anyways? And she kept telling uh, June that she was dying, which is, you know, that's your job. You were told you're supposed to die. So on the trip to Caswell, she had laid down and put her head in June's lap. And June says she slept with her eyes open. She just more or less went into a coma in the car and that was it. So Wallace goes to visit her a few days later and she seems, June seems like she's in like a weird mood. And June tells Wallace that I'm free at last. I'm liberated. And at last Jennifer has given up her life for me. But she at the same time seemed like she doesn't know what to do with herself now, right? Like it's such a huge difference that even though this is what she said she wanted, she's kind of got that like shock of, oh shit, I could actually really be a normal person. I mean, I, I think normal's out of the okay. equation, yes. but <laughs> she could be a single person. Vaguely normal. So Jennifer is buried in St. Martin Cemetery in Wales. And after Jennifer's death, June starts giving interviews with like Harper's Bazaar and like The Guardian. Like I said, living normally. By 2008, she lives by herself. She's near her parents. She's no longer being seen by like psychiatric services. This is the weirdest part for me. So like, I assume it's like a small town. So like when her and her sister were little and they were walking around doing weird shit, like everybody was aware of it. And then, like, when they started doing crimes and all of this, again, like, everybody was kind of aware of it. But she's now, like, accepted by her community. She says she's put the past behind her. There was an interview in 2016 with her sister, Greta. And she tells them that the family had been, like, very troubled when the girls were, you know, incarcerated. And she blames Broadmoor for ruining their lives. And she thinks that Jennifer's death was a result of like them neglecting her health. You know, like you're in prison, you're not getting routine checkups and you're probably not eating well and you're on a fuck ton of psych meds. She wants to go and file a lawsuit against Broadmoor, but her parents are like, we're not going to do it. It's not going to bring her back. Just leave it alone. But also all the doctors are like, we don't know what the fuck killed her. So would you have won a case against them anyways? Yeah. Seems like it'd be a lot of time and effort for nothing. I mean, I, yeah. Very interesting. 
So they've been in a bunch of different stuff. So in 1986, there was a TV drama called The Silent Twins. And it was on BBC Two. And then they did an inside story documentary, which was also called Silent Twin Without My Shadow, which we aired on the BBC One in 94. And then they actually made a play based on Wallace's book. It was titled Speechless. And that came out in London in 2011. And like I said, there's a bunch of YouTube stuff you can go watch on them. But that's the story of the Silent Twins. So is June still alive today? She is. She's still alive. Okay. Wow. She's living there her normal life, whatever the hell that means. I mean, that's like, I just, I don't know. I think about like the shit I got in trouble. Like I can't put the past behind me and I didn't even do anything that bad. you know I just find it very interesting that somebody would be able to like recover and kind of move on and live a more normal or like you know quote-unquote a more normal life well growing up she blamed everything on Jennifer it's Jennifer's fault that I'm not normal it's Jennifer's fault that we're getting bullied it's Jennifer's fault that I don't have friends yeah but then Jennifer felt that way about her exactly but then Jennifer died so she's like okay now I can just go be normal but yeah, it's it's very interesting. Good story. All right, what do you got for us? So uh, my story is also about two twin sisters. And this is the case of the Ursula and Sabina Erickson. <gasps> I love the story. It's a good one, right? Yes, that's an awesome one. So in 2008, it's a little bit more recent. In 2008, Ursula and Sabina... I didn't really find anything on their early life. They really seemed to just kind of have led a fairly normal childhood and adolescence. Ursula lived in the United States as an adult, and her sister Sabina lived in Ireland. So in 2008, Ursula decides that she's going to come pay her sister a visit, and she arrives in Ireland, or I'm sorry, in County Cork. (laughs) Sorry, are you Irish? All you Irish listeners. (laughs) And within 24 hours of her arriving in Ireland, they decide that they're going to pack up and they take the ferry over to Liverpool, England. As soon as they get into England, they go to the St. Anne Street police station. Sabina tells the police that she's really concerned about her children that she left with her partner back in Ireland. And she doesn't really give a lot of detail. She just says, she just says that she's concerned and... She would like, you know, the police force to kind of contact the Irish police and like go check on her kids. After that, they leave the police station and they get on a bus and they're going to head into London. So they're on, I mean, they're on the uh, M6, which is basically like a freeway here in the United States. And they're on this big coach bus and they just start acting out. Like they're just kind of getting loud and... They had refused to check their luggage when they originally got onto the bus. And so when, you know, the coach staff is coming around and kind of checking on people, they ask them, like, can we take these bags? We really need to check them. And they kind of just lost their shit and freaked out about them trying to take their bags. So they, the bus driver ends up stopping at the service station and he kicks the girls off or they're not really girls. He kicks the women off of the bus at this point. So now you have these two women that are just like 
standing in the middle of the freeway, basically, and they start walking just on the side of the motorway. That's what it's called in Europe. It's a motorway. It sounds so fancy. It does. It's much better than our freaking freeway. Or highway. I know there's a difference. I don't remember which one. I don't like I don't remember what the difference is, but there is a difference between a freeway and a highway. Did you know that? Yeah. I've always I don't know what the difference is. I've always used those terms like just interchangeably, but apparently they're different. Well, that's like here, everything's an interstate. Oh. So when I say freeway, I sometimes get weird looks. And I'm like, you know, you drive on it. I wonder if that's a West Coast thing. I think it is. All right. Okay. So anyways, the in England it's called the motorway, and we have these two grown women just walking around with their bags so obviously the police receive phone calls about you know they're disrupting traffic they're causing chaos the local authorities go out to investigate now this is the really interesting part about this whole thing is that the police that they sent out to check on these women were actually in the middle of shooting like a cops like reality show and so they had a camera crew with them when they went to go kind of check the situation out oh and the show is called motorway cops if anybody feels like looking it up that's awesome we should watch it (laughs) i couldn't find it i couldn't find it like on youtube or anything but that doesn't mean it's not out there so you got you got a camera crew you got a set of police officers and when they arrived they actually kind of expected that they might that somebody was going to get hit by a car is basically they figured they would show up and somebody would have been hit by a car and it would be like that was the situation they were expecting to walk into but they get there and like these women are just kind of they're fine they're holding conversation they're speaking normally to the police officers and as they're having these conversations Ursula the one who was from the United States that was visiting Ursula suddenly runs out into the middle of this motorway and she like basically like jumps in front of like a like a truck like not a passenger truck but like a like a big wheel truck like a you know what am I like a semi truck thank you so she basically jumps in front of the semi truck and her sister Sabina follows her and she's hit by like a car like a Going, you know, however fast you're going on this motorway, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, probably. And so she's like, she somersaults over the hood and like hits the windshield. And, you know, it's like really getting hit by a speeding car. You know, they're both just severely injured. Obviously, Ursula, who got hit by the larger semi vehicle, like her legs are just completely crushed, like pulverized. Sabina, you know, has like some broken ribs and she's you know scratched up and everything and she's actually ends up being unconscious for like 10-15 minutes she's just laying there in the middle of this motorway just like completely unconscious and then when she comes to as the emergency services are trying to like help revive her she like suddenly comes to is screaming about them stealing her organs and she keeps telling the paramedics that she recognizes them and that she knows that they're not real Oh, so like in those uh, urban legends where they come and like steal your kidney and put your ass on ice. I mean, I guess (laughs) she was really concerned about this. So as she's like screaming these things out, she like gets this burst of adrenaline and she gets to her feet. Like, granted, like she just got hit by a car. 
she stands up and she punches the female officer that was trying to hold her back. She like punches her in the face. And then she runs back into the middle of the, of the motorway. So she didn't get hit again, but she like punches this cop and then like definitely tries to make another attempt to get hit. Police, it took like four or five police officers and paramedics to finally calm her down and like get her subdued and in the, in the vehicle. They end up obviously taking them to the hospital for their physical injuries. Then they were hospitalized in a mental facility. The doctors weren't really able to pinpoint what was going on here. They both seemed pretty lucid. They had coherent answers for the questions. Ursula spoke about her life in the United States. Sabina talked about, you know, what was going on in her life. Yeah, so the doctors were just kind of like, okay, we don't know what's going on. So Ursula, who was the one that got ran over by the semi, she ends up spending three months in the psychiatric facility, you know, partly to heal physically and then also just to undergo examination. Sabina's end up being released back into society just after a couple days of being in this facility. They, like they said, they were like, we can't figure out what's going on here. Like, yes, they just felt like getting hit by cars. Like, I mean, it's very strange the way that the psychiatrists weren't able to provide any kind of like answers or even any help, right? They're just going to release her back out. So even though like all this had happened and it was really crazy, they just, they released Sabina and she's kind of out just like wandering around. Because remember, like they're still, she's still not, she's from Ireland, they're in England. She doesn't know anybody. So she's wandering the streets and she ends up meeting these two men that are walking a dog. And she asks them where she might be able to find a place to stay. She's looking for like a bed and breakfast. The gentleman that was walking the dog, his name is Glenn Hollinstead. And he's a 54-year-old man who is a licensed paramedic. So here you have somebody that's like a good Samaritan, obviously has empathy. And he invites her into his home for the evening. Like, you obviously don't know where you are. You can come and stay here with me. Back at his home, um, Mr. Hollinstead had a friend that had also been visiting and his name was Peter Malloy. As they're just kind of like spending the evening together, Sabina starts acting really erratic. She just starts getting really bizarre. She had a pack of cigarettes and she offered them to the men. They accepted a cigarette and then she like snatched them out of their mouth and crushed them on the floor and were like, they're poison. They just didn't have any idea like why somebody would do that. And then she closed all the drapes in his room and, but then kept looking out the window and like, like she was expecting somebody to show up and get her. Malloy decided that, that he was going to leave. Like, thanks for having me. I'm going to (laughs) go. And he ends up leaving late that night. The next day just starts as a normal day. Hollinstead gets up. He starts, you know, his day. Sabina freaks out again in a fit of rage. She grabs a butcher knife from the kitchen and ends up stabbing this guy, Mr. Hollinstead, five times. And he ends up dying. After the murder, she she leaves. She freaks out. She flees the scene. And she at this point, she has taken a hammer from Hollinstead's house. So she's walking around bloody, holding a hammer. Somebody spotted her and she was hitting herself in the head with the hammer. So this person calls the police because obviously this sounds insane. Right? That's crazy. 
Right? Like, what would you do if you just saw somebody walking around, like, smacking themselves on the head with a hammer? Like, obviously, this person's disturbed. A gentleman by the name of Joshua Gradage, he was just a motorist that was driving by. He stopped and asked her, like, are you okay? Do you need anything? Can I do anything for you? She freaks out that he's talking to her, grabs a piece of debris from the ground and, like, throws it at him and ends up hitting him in the head. And it ends up, it's like a piece of tile. And, you know, so then he's injured, he falls down and she runs away. So at this point, like you got like multiple people that have seen her, you've got an injured guy, the paramedics show back up um, and give chase. Like they're trying to find her and track her down. Sabina knows that she's in trouble. She finds herself on a bridge. It's a 40 foot tall bridge over the motorway. And so she jumps. There's like, there's not even any kind of contemplation. She just walks up and just jumps over the bridge. Seriously? Yeah. That's crazy. Like she, she was very uh, on a path. She was determined. Surprisingly, she survives. She had a couple fractures. What the fuck is with the girls? They're like fucking invincible. Like superhero like. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine getting hit by a car and a couple days later jumping off a bridge and just only suffering some fractures and bruises. Um, so she survives. She's obviously at the, that point arrested and charged with murder. She was charged with the murder of Glenn Hollinstead on September 11th, 2008. And her trial began September 1st, 2009. You know, pretty quick. It kept getting stalled after that because they, the the courts and the lawyers, they kept trying to obtain her medical records from Sweden from when she had been young. They couldn't get these medical records. And so when they finally did get them, there wasn't anything necessarily abnormal about her health or her upbringing. Is that why they were waiting for the test results? They thought, oh, maybe, you know, she had some health condition or was batshit crazy or something. Yeah, I think they were really looking, trying to figure out, like, what is wrong with this person? Like, this is just totally irrational because one minute you're being insane and killing people and the next minute you're totally coherent and fine. She ends up pleading guilty to manslaughter due to a diminished responsibility, but that that's what they call it in England, but here it'd be like diminished capacity, basically saying that you weren't in a complete mental state to be making, to be held responsible for the choices that you made. She never explained her actions. She never even talked to the police. The whole time they're interviewing her, the whole time that they're asking her about what happened, she just kept saying no comment. What? I feel like everybody that's ever been on that show, 48 hours or whatever, like the first 48. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I always think that Tom Segura bit he's a stand-up comedian and he always is like he talks about that show and how like the people just crack at like the first five minutes and he's like lie lie for longer right I always wonder that I'm like you've only been being interrogated for like 12 minutes like come on yeah and they're like yeah I did it (laughs) anyways they could learn something because she just like she literally never said anything to the police it was just no comment no comment no comment which in and of itself is pretty an astounding feat to just not, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I would crack for sure. Her defense team argued that she had suffered from a, I'm going to totally butcher this word. I'm so sorry. Let me Google this. 
What is up guys, Julian here, the French wine making guy who makes wine videos here on YouTube. So today we are looking at how to pronounce and what is this wine that is called Poly A Deux. Okay, I'm accent deaf. I have no, I, I have a really hard time understanding accents. I think you said a feu de deux. So <laughs> basically what this word means is that it's a shared psychosis. And so it's, you know, a shared delusion. It usually happens with a really close relative or even it's been recorded in really like close friendships. Um, but it's, it's pretty rare that this would happen. Um, and it causes you to have intense delusions um, during the time of the crime. And they're like shared, right? They're shared delusions. Right. It's this whole shared delusion and not make sense, but which speaks to the fact that like you'd be having this delusion and be a part of this delusion and be all caught up in it. And then the next minute really not be a part of that at all. And have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And then just have full control over your capacities again. The judge at this time determined that she had low culpability for her crimes due to this diminished state. And she was sentenced to five years in prison. Obviously, Glenn Hollenstead's family was pretty unhappy about what happened. Like, here was this guy trying to be really nice and offer this woman a place to stay. And then he just gets stabbed to death for no reason. Don't do nice things. Yeah, don't, don't be nice to people. That's, that makes me sad, though, because I feel like that is the state of our world right now. Like, it's really hard to know who to trust. Yeah, you never know. So Glenn Hollenstead's family was really concerned about the fact that this woman had been like in a psychiatric facility just a couple days before she'd obviously like she tried to kill herself on this by running in front of you know these cars but then they had just released her with like no follow-up or no instructions so they were pretty upset about that and they continued to um kind of pursue you know whatever legal means they had for but at this point nothing that I could find like I don't know if they ever ended up appealing the case because they couldn't find anything um, Ursula, apparently, after she was released from the psychiatric facility a couple months later after healing, she went back to the United States and just continued to live her life. Uh, Sabina was released on parole in 2011, and they believe that she actually returned to Europe. She said she never went back to Ireland, but they don't exactly know where she is. So, yeah, that is the story of Ursula and Sabina Erickson. Twins are crazy. And yeah, another great example of why you don't need a twin. Yeah. Listening to our stories, I guess it's good that we were both not twins. Yeah. We were the we were both the eldest. So I think that that comes with a whole different level of responsibility. I can't imagine if there were two. Can you imagine if there were two me's? <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. There definitely would have. There definitely would have been shared delusions, I'm sure. That's too funny. All righty. Well, I liked this episode. It was a little more tame. Yeah, it wasn't as dark as some of our more recent ones. So that was nice. But, you know, it's almost October. So I feel like we're definitely going to have to start digging into some of the really creepy stuff. Yeah, I'm super excited. Do some fun ghosty stories. Or haunted places. Excellent. Do we have a topic for next week? We do. It's probably going to be very dark compared to this week. We are doing cold cases. 
open parameters, right? Just as long as it's a cold case. Yeah. Whatever we want. We're the boss, you know. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> well, just for our just for our campers, you know, how we do this is like Allison picks a story, I pick a story. We don't talk about them beforehand. So yeah, we don't. That's I like that because then we go into it not knowing. It makes it more fun. Except we kind of knew about you knew about the Erickson twins. I knew about the silent twins. Yeah. Although not to the extent. I didn't know a lot of the stuff that you that you found. Yeah, that's the only thing because we have to kind of make sure. I'm waiting for the episode where we pick the same fucking story. <laughs> One day. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> well, and that was my concern with twins because I was like, my story and yours are like top hits when you Google like weird twin shit. So yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of stories about individual, like just kind of everyday twins that have had kind of telepathic or, you know, psychic experiences with each other, but there's limited amounts of like the evil quote unquote evil twins or just like the super weird shit. Like we talked about today. So, all right. Well, cold cases next week. And this is good. I'm going to do some good digging and find a really interesting one. You're going to go super gory. I can already tell. Uh, It's actually not that bad. It's one of my, we talked about it in the first q and I I don't think we actually aired that part, but it's one of my, I want to know what the hell happened cases. Oh yeah. Way back eight episodes ago. (laughs) When we were just little podcast babies. (laughs) That seems like forever ago. I mean, it was what, June maybe? already September yeah we're in a time warp I know that DJ keeps saying that all the time it's crazy time just flies by I watched this crazy um documentary about being like basically being in the matrix and how like we're not necessarily like there's a whole group of individuals that have a shared belief that this is not like base reality that we're all just like living in a simulation that's kind of awesome we might have to cover that it was a really interesting, it was just interesting to kind of get some more information about it. My wife thinks I'm batshit, though. She was like, that's not real. <laughs> that's okay. I think GJ gets mad because he keeps telling me, he's like, it's not that I like believe in flat earthers, but a couple of the things they're saying, like, oh, makes vaguely a little bit of sense. And I'm like, that's the whole point of conspiracy theories, right? It's batshit. But then a little bit, you're like, actually, that kind of does make sense. Well, I think that that's, yeah, I mean, I've gone down the flat earth thing as well. And I'm not, I'm not a flat earther. I'm just saying I can't do the kind of math that's required to calculate the circumference and speed of earth. And so it's like, who knows? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I'm not saying they're right. I'm not saying they're wrong. One of um, my wife's cousins gets really upset when I talk about this so I make an effort to annoy her (laughs) (laughs) she just looks at me like I'm insane my whole point is that we should just be open to other options and other viewpoints because we don't really know like we don't really know exactly you think you know but do you really know we should maybe do an episode on conspiracy theories that'd be fun Ooh, if we do that I have a guess. Can we have a guess? Ooh, yeah, let's do that. That sounds like fun. All right, I'll uh, I'll see what I can do and work on that. Cool. 
Also, I thought of a topic for like a deep dive episode, like we had to talk about like with cults. Uh huh. And I was thinking we should do like domestic violence. It's a little triggering. And spousal, like the psychology behind, you know, the people that abuse their spouses and the way they control them. I think it's very interesting. All right. I think we could do some deep dives. I think we have enough topics here. I, I'm still researching what we <laughs> talked about last week. So some deep dives. Oh, all my yeah. stuff. Yeah. Larry King, Larry King Jr. All the things. That's true here. Maybe when we get to 10 or 15 episodes, we'll go and revisit a couple. That sounds like a good plan. All right, campers, thanks for listening. You can find us online at the number two, girlsandacampfire.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, check out our website, click like and subscribe, all the things you know what to do. And we will see you around around the campfire. campfire. Bye.